Andrew Goldman is an accomplished and creative leader with industry-wide relationships and is highly respected for his ability to collaborate and negotiate. Andy's expertise is in developing and launching new linear and digital initiatives, strategy, acquisitions, multi-platform scheduling, and channel development conversion that target both broad and specific demographics. Andy is currently VP of Programming at Fathom Events, an entertainment content provider that broadcasts entertainment events in movie theaters throughout the U.S., including film, television, theater, Metropolitan Opera Live in HD, their performing arts, major sporting events, and music concerts. Goldman oversees acquisitions of high-value content with broad audience appeal. Get ready for a special Girls on Film with Andy Goldman. Everybody, this is Sarah Smith. I'm with Girls on Film, and we are very lucky today to have a very experienced, interesting, relevant, and cutting-edge executive with us today. His name is Andrew Goldman, and he has an <laughs> unbelievable resume. He's the vice president of programming at Fathom Events, and if you go to any movie, you know Fathom events. Anything exciting happening with you? Don't just go to the theater. Experience it only with Fathom events. I go to lots of them. It's part of my job. And um, that was one of the reasons that I reached out to you, Andrew, Andy. I wanted to ask you about um, your involvement with NATIS, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, because I'm on the Board of Governors here in the Southeast, and I wanted to know how long you've been working with them. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, you know, I, I'd like to say I've been working with them for close to 30 years, but I think I'm somewhat of a lapsed uh, member because I haven't been to any meetings uh, for a while. But, uh, you know, I read everything that's going on and uh, I pay my dues very diligently and the check clears. So brilliant. But I I, I used it, obviously, <clears throat> as a portal, not only to uh, get to know my brethren in the industry, but to also kind of, uh, as I like to say, get the story behind the headline, you know, behind the press release, real grays of how people think and cultivate relationships with new individuals outside of my company. Right, right. How did you get involved with BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television? You know, something I was invited as a plus one to an event. Huh. Honestly, it was new faces, new people to learn from, uh, new people right. to network with, just new points of view. And uh like, like Oliver Twist, I, I said more, sir, you know, holding up my cup of and I eat all the porridge. And I just I, I, I glommed on to the people who were in charge of admissions. And I, uh, I said, look, what can I do? Yes, I am not British. Yes, I don't work in British television, but I have aired British uh, produced shows. 
And I offered up my services any which way until they finally let me in. I was very tenacious. <laughs> I am very tenacious. nice. That's good. Um, how important do you think it is for people breaking into television, um, broadcasting to be members of groups like this? You know, something I've always found that uh, getting an advocate is uh, half the battle and getting an advocate is the toughest part. So we happen to have wonderful uh, resources nowadays through social media, through uh, like I would say professional sites such as LinkedIn. I would highly recommend, especially if you're a student, it is never too early or too late to start. Reach out to people, write a very, I would say, pointed, matter-of-fact note that, hey, I'm very impressed by your career, and I would really be interested. Can I buy you a cup of coffee, or do you have 10 minutes over the phone? You know, and really uh, try to kind of forge a connection with individuals. And when you forge connections with individuals, soon you will have a community and soon people and, and you can't just reach out once a year. You have to kind of like know that fine balance, how to be in touch with people without being annoying to them. And I always tell people there are natural and elegant ways to do it. And that includes getting people's, you know, work address or their home address and send them a holiday card, you know, or send them an email telling them what you're up to that, uh, you know, without asking for anything. So you are priming the pump for when it is time to maybe ask for a favor for or an introduction for things. I can tell you that uh, recently I was at a class uh, guest speaking and uh, it was probably about 30 people and a couple of people wrote me and I'll give you an example. One person wrote me with about 15 questions and and another person wrote me and just said, hey, I really enjoyed uh, you hearing you speak. You know, can we meet for a cup of coffee? Now, the person with the 15 questions, I didn't ignore, but I looked at that as like it was a homework assignment. You know, I mean, yes. <laughs> I'm a busy person. I assume they're busy. And it was there wasn't a uh, I, I know it came from a good place, you know, from a knowledge place. But there was a lack of thoughtfulness. Yeah. You know, I mean, you want to hop on the phone, you want to meet me for a cup of coffee, I'll find the time. That's fine. So, you know, I mean, I wrote her back and I said, let's hop on the phone. Okay. And by the way, the questions were incredibly vague. And the questions were almost like, you know, I spent two and a half hours, three hours at that class, and we covered a lot of the ground. And she said, is there any other advice? Well, for the two and a half hours, it was all about advice. When you say something (laughs) like, if I'm sounding mean, and if the woman's listening to me now, my apologies, but please listen to the substance of what I'm saying. As opposed to the other person who wrote me, asked me for coffee, you know, it's just going to be a little bit more elegant, a little bit more easier for me as the person who, let's face it, I'm doing them the favor by meeting with them so they can, you know, I can share my so-called wisdom. If I'm coming across arrogant, I apologize to you and your audience right now, but, you know, there is a process on how, I mean, this is what I've learned from my mentors over the years, you know, be respectful and work around the people's time. And don't think that just because they came and talked to you and you gave out your email that right now you are their personal like manager in terms of their career. How many, how much time do you spend as a adjunct lecturer annually? 
Well, I am. Uh, I teach two classes. Each one runs uh, two hours and forty minutes, and I probably spend a half an hour additional a week, you know, meeting with students either before or after class because I don't have an office there. And I do this in the evening. And uh, if you know anything about uh, the teaching profession, you're not doing it for the money. Uh, as I've always, <laughs> as, as I've told my wife and I told my, tell my friends, it's the best therapy in town because you can be your most authentic self. Uh, and sometimes you might be in a meeting or something and you're just kind of nodding along and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this isn't the way I would go, but. Politically speaking, I can't really speak up in front of a room full of people. Maybe I'll get the person in charge later and give my two cents worth. And then again, you start thinking to yourself, well, you know, maybe it's not worth it, you know. But you go and you teach, you know, you and the students, and you get to kind of explain your rationales. My ultimate job as a teacher is to have them have their most authentic voice so they they can understand the difference between uh, not so much what they say, but the way they say it, especially in the entertainment industry, which you're dealing with a lot of big egos. And it is all about the delivery system. And more importantly, you can't say something like, I don't like it. You have to be able to say something like, I don't like it because of point A, B, C, D. And it reminds me of this as well as this. And it performed like this, you know. Until you are the person who is in charge of the meeting and you have, frankly, decades of experience, they're the people who can say, I don't like it because they've earned that right. You know, a lot of people, you know, come in and they do a job in half an hour when some people take two hours to do it. Well, the people who do the job in half an hour, they probably spent 10 or 15 years and they have that kind of experience which enables them to do it in half an hour. Exactly. You know, so and that's where, in my opinion, why you hire experience. Andy, you earned your master's in fine arts in cinema studies at uh, the Tisch School. Yes. When did you do that? Did you do it immediately following your undergraduate degree or was it a little bit later? It was a little bit later. And uh, I, I will tell you, and I actually just spoke about this last night, um, to, uh, I, I was at, uh, an event, a Warner Brothers event, and I was talking to a couple former colleagues and I said, you know, when I started at HBO, I was in the guide department and I wrote copy for something called a printed magazine for your listeners, you know, look that up printed magazine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, I was writing copy, and it, it was a wonderful first job. I got to learn about the company and the product. But I will tell you, I uh, I kind of cracked that code within a year on how to do it, and I wasn't, in my opinion, being challenged. But I learned, and this was back in the 80s, um, they had something called, and a lot of big companies have them today, so please, if you're listening, look for your companies. They have tuition reimbursement. And so I... I thought about it. You know, my parents both have masters and, you know, and they're, they're, you know, they're really wonderful, educated people who always felt like there's no reason our children shouldn't, should have any less of an education than we do. So it was kind of like, they didn't say, oh, you have to go back to school. Oh, you have to continue your education. No, but it's always kind of was like, you know, they were people who instilled in me a follow the learning mentality. 
So here I had this opportunity. I had this wonderful job and I was building my career and I looked for programs that allowed me to go part-time at night and the bonus being I got my company to pay 75%. They would have paid 100%. So smart. Yeah, they would have paid 100% if it was directly related to my job. Guess what? Getting a master's from uh, NYU Tisch uh, at 75% was a pretty darn good deal. And I will tell you, <laughs> it also enhanced me on the professional front because people knew about it. And they, you know, they looked at me probably like, okay, he's an ambitious guy. He's going back to school at night while doing his job and everything like that. And it allowed me, when they heard about it, people actually said, hey, you know, we have this job in this role. And that's how I was able to move into my programming role because people knew that I was a guy who just wasn't going to, uh, you know, just follow the rules that I always tried to extend beyond my reach. So please, people, no matter your company, wherever you're working, you know, Look at tuition reimbursement. There might be a cap on it. So it takes you five years, six years. Get it. Do it, please. It, it is a life changer. And more importantly, it's part of your elevator pitch if you're meeting people. It's very, very important if you can, if you have the time and the resources to do it. And there's today there are online programs. Just do it and let the company pay. Huh. That's such good advice. I have a pre HBO question. Were you not still in school when you started working as a screenplay analyst? No, actually, I, I was I was in college. I was an undergrad at the time. And, right. Uh, I, I, How do you get that gig? That, you know, something tenacity. You know, um, I started really getting involved in film and television when I was 12 years old, when the movie Jaws came out and I started reading Hollywood Reporter and Variety, there was no email blasts, you know, it was newsprint. So I had to wash my hands after reading Variety. It was disgusting, but I <laughs> every moment of it. Um, and so, but I started reading names and this is back then when you would write letters to people. Okay, look that up on the internet, Wikipedia, writing letters. And uh, I wrote, I saw that David Brown who produced Jaws I wrote him a letter, and he was gracious enough to meet with me, and wow. and he introduced me to a couple of people. And my first gig, that screenplay analyst, I was working for what is called a, a script broker. The guy would actually scour like the uh, film uh, film schools looking for screenwriters who were kind of early. He would buy their scripts at a very low rate and see what he could do in terms of flipping them. Into, so before the agents got him, flipping him to an agency or to a studio. And I was the guy, you know, 2021, who would talk about it from my perspective. Um, you know, what I thought, would somebody like me, a young male, want to see a movie like this? And uh, and that's what right. I, that my, that's where my concentration was, focusing on features like that. What You worked for a couple of uh, big name projects, didn't you? Yes. Well, here was the thing. I saw them in their most nascent form. And uh, what I read isn't necessarily what translated to the screen. There was, uh, I would say, right. a major iteration, but the foundation was there to have something big and almost, you know, the, these brands that have been either, uh, you know, remade, rebooted or turned into the series. They still have, like, I would say, an evergreen quality like today. So I, I feel good about that. To be completely frank, uh, <laughs> you know, there were definitely some duds I got behind too that uh, you know uh, 
they went by way of the uh, DeLorean. Okay, so and I don't mean the DeLorean in Back to the Future. I'm talking about the actual car itself. <laughs> so, uh, well, what was the early iteration of Lethal Weapon? If these guys can just stand each other, what you got in there? Boy and Smith. A lot of old timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Suppose we better register you as a Lethal Weapon. You ever met anybody? You didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Oh, my God. That was a much darker script. But I like the idea of cop drama that was a little, you know, that had huge action set pieces that weren't grounded in reality. But they had like a toe in reality. But, you know, that no human being could, uh, you know, you just wanted something that felt like it was cinematic because there was a lot of cop shows on the air in the 70s and 80s and a lot of them had a more of a i would say french connection grounded appeal to it this had something that was character driven as well as you know it expanded it for the big screen and you know uh you know the riggs character actually died in the original script so you know yeah i mean so listen you know we're talking whoever uh you know took it over put their imprint on it they said, okay, they, it, and it was never intended as a series. It was a big, uh, it was supposed to be a one and done thing. And four movies later in a TV show, here it is, you know, like what, 30 plus years, you know, that this is part of our zeitgeist. Amazing. Amazing. I want to ask you about now, when you were watching a film, what, what things did you get from your masters in fine arts in cinema that you use now when watching a film, either scene composition or balance of screen, uh, mise-en-scene? <laughs> what are there things that you just naturally see? Well, you know, something in addition to that, because I, I that was drilled into me during my uh, right at my program. I will say that, uh, and it's painful to admit, let's be honest, you know, I've kind of become somewhat more of a business hat. Is there an audience for this? And how can I activate that audience? How can I make sure that there's a good match? You know, because, you know, there are movies I love. And in my role over at Fathom Events, I know that it is a very, very slender audience. chance that I can get those people into a movie theater because more likely than not, they want to wait for home video and movies sometimes lend themselves to a more intimate setting as in the home. They are more for the pay-per-view audience. So, and those are the films that I have to kind of like have to pass on, even though personally I love them and they, they, they touch me. And, but I have to start thinking about, because like I said, this is my business ad. I, I can talk about the fact that, Hey, I love this thing. Unfortunately, I don't know if our resources are the best use of our, you know, dollars and and the the corporate uh, people to kind of try to like push something that I know is going to be really hard to get people into a theater. Okay, you know, so I factor in like, okay, who is the audience? Listen, there is a lid for every pot. Okay, the question is, what is the size of the pot, and uh, how many theaters? Are we going to push something in? And, you know, I'm currently working on a project that has its uh, phones at like, you know, it has its audience 
on a based on an Amazon series. So there's an audience there and it's for it's family friendly. You know, is it art? No. Is it entertainment? Yes. And I know I could make this happen and I know I can get a lot of people in. I wish I could be more of a purist. That's why I work on uh, some film festivals occasionally. I can go back to that, you know, be a judge there. And uh, but when I'm talking on my professional hat now, I have to kind of like think about, okay, what's going to fill the seats? What's going to put dollars in the coffer and, uh, you know, and allow me to keep doing what I do every day that I love. In your role at Fathom Events, what do you see as their current identity as a brand in the realm of entertainment? And if you could direct it somewhere that where it would be in the next 10 years, where would you push it to? Well, uh, fabulous question. I uh, I will tell you that uh, I think that one thing we have to do is expand, you know, and which we're doing uh, into new areas of what is deemed that it comes under the banner of entertainment. Uh, I think that we have to start looking at new uh, people who I think don't necessarily have the exposure of, uh, you know, like having the access to their audience. Um so what I think about, like, we just came off. We're, we're playing, you know, in uh, partnership with Warner Brothers, we're playing episodes of the TV show Friends, you know, in honor of its 25th anniversary. And it is blowing things, uh, uh, just blowing the roof off the uh, theaters because we would have never expected that a show that has been off the air for 15 years, that the reruns have been in continual play, whether it's on your local station or on a Netflix or wherever that people would still pay to want to go. So this is about activating communities that love, you know, that want to get together and share an experience. And there's, whether it's opera, whether it's boxing, whether it's a certain speaker, whether it's a revival of a movie or the uh, anniversary of a TV show, I just have to kind of like, you know, find out where those audiences are and get them and get them activated and excited about going to a movie theater and being together. What about, you know, something I love talking to people. What would you like to see, Sarah? And Port, what would would you like like to see? I would like to go see a debate, like a big Democratic debate at the movie theater and throw popcorn around and Ah. and just listen to what other people say, because I sit and watch with my Twitter feed. And it is like a conversation, but it's a little lonely. It would be it would be fun to watch a debate at a movie theater. What do you think? I think it's amazing. I think I think it's great. You know, the issue being, do you think that people like yourself would want to go with other people? And let me ask you a question. Let's face it. When it comes to debates, you know, those are highly charged totally worth discussing um you know right. do you remember when norman lear did the live uh restaging of the jefferson yes. all in the family now i thought Fantastic. you know there's only 300 people in the audience you know who are watching it there but how about we watch it live in a theater so people feel that urgency and they get it together um as a yep. in their living room i thought that might make an interesting uh concept you know so i have a, a couple of uh, feelers out about that because they plan on doing two more um, but along the debate lines, that's very interesting, you know, and we have had, you know, political speakers and commentators uh, do their events. I know uh, a few years ago they did something with uh, Glenn Beck and uh, Bill O'Reilly, but, you know, right. but 
but we recently did something with uh, Kathy Griffin. So it's not like <laughs> we're leaning politically any one way. We just want to have interesting right. people up there uh, who can express their opinions, you know, in a, uh, you know, frankly, responsible way. You could put um, Trump up with whoever the Democratic nominee would be. <laughs> I go to the movies and I love to go to the theater. And one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you to do this was because I am in, really intrigued by the fact that Fathom events even exist as an adjunct to the traditional movie that you can go see. Um, I have gone to see, uh, I went to see the Phantom of the Opera several years ago, the part two. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that. Um, Great program. Loved seeing it. But how do you pick things that have, again, the broad audience appeal? How do you know? I mean, I I know you're an analyst, and I'd just love to kind of dig into that a little bit with you, your analytical side. Well, let let me just tell you, you know, I've only been with Fathom since the beginning of this year. So when I used to, like, buy things for HBO and Cinemax, that was somewhat of a different sort of, like, mindset. I now have to work from, okay, does this make sense from a Fathom perspective? Does this make sense for the HBO and Cinemax perspective? And the Fathom perspective is also like, okay, because they are a – their company – that is owned by uh, three movie chains that are, you know, they're in conjunction with Fathom, obviously, because we're there to help fill the seats. And the three movie chains are AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. And remember, uh, by extension, they're also in competition with each other, except when it comes to Fathom. So we have to, you know, so I have like, you know, it's like three different boards to make them happy and satisfied in terms of you know, and this is somewhat of the uh, the corporate mindset, you know, making sure that and by the way, they, for the most part, they are very happy. Actually, I shouldn't say for the most part, they are very happy with what we do. And look, we're coming off a high. Uh, you're going to see a uh, press release later this week about uh, what we've done with friends last month. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a show as I would say as recent as friends. Last month in uh, in August, we did something around I Love Lucy, which wildly exceeded expectations too so and that's a show that's you know over 70 years old not bad right um so my my point uh, going back to the mindset i'm looking for things that you know you could do it broad-based and niche but you want to make sure that you're covering a lot okay a lot of different people i because i always go back to when i used to think about hbo cinemax who was the head of household and guess what there are lots of heads of household out there. But the issue being now that I have to see, okay, we have our mark, can our marketing people get behind it? And also the content providers, you know, the people who are kind of coming up with these ideas, what are they doing at their end? We have the in-theater, you know, promotion because of all the theaters, you know, in our circuit. But what are people going to do on the outside, you know, to drive people to the theaters to buy the tickets for the event? So there's, a, I would say, a lot of moving parts. And, you know, and the, and the team in Denver who've been doing this for 15 years, they know how to kind of like analyze and evaluate 
what to kind of like, you know, give the green light for versus what's the yellow light and say, hey, we got to go back and rethink this versus the red light. And I'm learning that, I would say, every day, every week, every month. I'm getting like a squinch smarter. And isn't that what it's all about anyway, that we're just, we keep growing? I am um, looking at Fathom events on Twitter right now. How are we doing? You got 26 million followers. That's pretty good. (laughs) I'd like to ask you about the Shawshank Redemption. Yes, yes. I mean, think about it. That is a movie that is playing somewhere whether it's on AMC or on a premium channel like a Showtime or uh, Stars, that's a movie. I don't think that there's a right. week in this country that it doesn't play. It, you know, it is for somebody like me. You know, it is the ultimate bromance movie. Love it. Can watch it. You know, it's one of those things. You know, if I catch it at the beginning, I'll stay with it through the end. If I catch in the middle, I will stay through it at the end. If I catch it in the middle and I have to leave, I'm happy about like that little, you know, piece, you know, my double part right. viewing of it. Um, it yep. just, it has something that speaks to me. It hasn't it does. been it does. as a collective experience with other theater goers in a very long time. And there was never a better opportunity than for right now, the 25th anniversary, to bring it back to theaters and yeah. more importantly to show, you know, our our fans, the Fathom uh, audience, the Fathom family, that, you know, we're doing things like that. And, you know, we also have a wonderful uh, faith-based network in there. You know, we have things that appeal to the anime audience, you know. So, as I like to say, the Mm. best, you know, um, buffet, okay? And you could load up on one thing or you can sample many things. Well, you definitely have a potpourri of offerings, and I think it's very exciting. Um, if there was something that you could grab and throw on easily that you don't have right now that you'd like to see, what might that be? You know, it, there is a project, and I, you know, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to discuss it. But I'm making some very slow traction with. But I have to think about something I haven't done because, okay. uh, and if anybody's listening and can make this happen, um, gosh, you know. Listen, you know, one of my favorite TV shows of all time is Frasier. And that went off the air in uh, 2004, the same year that uh, Friends went off the air. The difference being, though, and it it started, you know, in 1993, the year Cheers ended. So I would love to do something around Frasier, especially, and like I said, this is a pipe dream, um, especially if they plan, uh, if the plans to reboot the show are going to, you know, come to life i think that would be the most amazing thing i don't know if that it certainly does not have i would say the same connectivity and is broad based as uh say friends is but you know to speak to somebody like me i mean if you look at good sitcoms they're like live theater i mean they really are and you know when you have actors that just you know inhabit these roles and that you've been frankly you grew up with them and you just feel i mean kelsey Grammer, remember he was on uh cheers for eight years <laughs> in addition to the uh 11 years or nine years he, you know, he played the same role for 20 years you know i mean god i mean look it, it's hard to you know break out of that but nobody does it better and he's done variations of that character but the writing was so sharp and so smart and uh I would love to see a Fathom event that he hosted, like he could pick his favorite um, Frasier episodes 
And even if they relaunch it, and then we can right. kind of like premiere the new, if there's a new Frasier, you know, and um, listen, you know, and that's the whole thing about Fathom. It isn't just going to see like a revival. There's always some added value, you know, something behind the scenes. You know, I have something that I definitely want to see. If you could make it happen, I'd be very grateful. Um, my dad was the voice of the NFL for 17 years. And he recorded so many different films for NFL films. Um, and I can't find them anywhere. They're not online. They're nowhere. Um, but so many historical pieces like Road to the Super Bowl. Every year there was a Road to the Super Bowl. And these are brilliant, long form, you know, 30, 40 minute short films that were so well done and well written um, and well read. Uh, pat on his back. Um, he won four National Sports Emmy Awards for his work there. And um, but they don't they don't have NFL Films doesn't play them anywhere. Rarely on the NFL Network. Um, there's a treasure trove of great stuff uh, at NFL Films. So listen, if you have a contact over there, or I can certainly reach out. I will definitely try and listen. That is it. That that's I a might. great audience right now. You know, easy to activate. Get them into the theaters. Wanted to do something. Yeah. If there's like you know, even doing maybe cut their own documentary of like the best of NFL films. You know, I mean, uh, how great would it be? You know, we premiere it, then they can downstream it to who whomever, including their own channel that they like. Love it, love it. I look for this stuff all the time, and I that's can't a real, find it. That's anywhere. a real shame, and you know, so. it should be accessible. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Andy, I have a hard time calling you Andy because I, you know, read your bio as Andrew, and it's a beautiful name. <laughs> well, thank you, but I. I, I I like Andy, but I, I go by Andrew professionally. And I always tell people that, you know, if it's going to be bad news, start the conversation with Andrew so I can reset my bars and tones. And uh, it, it's a silliness, but I own it. Absolutely. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you because we're going to we're going to call this. Um, what are we going to call this podcast? Take two, Take two. with Fathom Vice President Andrew Goldman. Because you did come on here when we had a technical glitch and you agreed to come back on and that will not be forgotten. Seriously, you guys are wonderful. And, uh, and I thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, I'm very honored and touched. So thank you. May I ask a random question? Can you just tell me, what's it like being on the Board of Governors at the Friars Club? The roasts are so hot, so popular. They're such a part of our culture. Comedians are dying to get into the club. They really want to be a part of the roast. It is such an honor to be here at the Friars Club, I guess. Um, the Friars have so much so much history. You know, they say it's haunted, but I just don't believe that stuff. Oh my god, the ghost of Jerry Lewis. Oh my god, okay. Oh my god, well look. If I, if I truly told you how it is, you would probably the doctor over here, like, check me out for Tourette's. Um, it is a filthy, <laughs> it, no, it's the, it really is actually, it, it's business. It's about the business of entertainment. It's about, oh. it's, it's wonderful. There's really some incredibly smart people who, uh, who have been members for, for decades and decades. And they just want to keep like, uh, the tradition of live performances 
alive. And they want people to remember that, you know, that, uh, you know, the people on YouTube have been preceded by people from vaudeville and, and radio and television. You know, that there is a rich tradition of history and it's about people who right. through blood, sweat and tears, you know, earn their craft as opposed to doing something, you know, and they did it with personality through trial and error as opposed to through editing. You know, it's easy to put up a YouTube video that lasts three minutes and makes yourself look brilliant. We're talking about people who get up and do a show three or four times a night, seven days a week, traveling eight months a year, refining it, getting it better time and again. So, I mean, to me, that's, and think about, talk about follow the learning. Right. Boy, you know, and that's what, to me, the Flyers is. It's a fraternal organization of people in entertainment supporting each other through good and bad. Beautiful. I think we're good, Andy. We're going to wrap now. And I know that our Girls on Film audience is going to love you. And again, um, thank you. Thank you both. Take care. This is Girls on Film, and we are out.